yes, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Beer, Rap and Banter with your boy, the Foreign Minister of BRB, Cal Sirius, and also alongside my co-host. Ash, what's going on, people? How are we this Saturday? I'd like, to think, good. I'd like to think everyone's doing well. I'm doing well myself. How are you getting on, Ash? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy for the weekend. Um, even though it's been a four-month weekend. Um, it's yeah, a long still, weekend. Yeah, it's a long-ass weekend. You still kind of appreciate just Saturday, Sunday, maybe not having to clock on or be available for a meeting that's early. So, yeah, it's been a, it's been a good Saturday so far. Long may it continue. It's going to get even better because I'm looking forward to our guest today, man. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. How you been? Um, me, myself, yeah, I've been all right. I've been all right, you know. Um, feels good uh, now that the, the barbershops are opening again so you can go and slowly get your routine back. I think it's. I think we maybe we underestimated how important it is to kind of do the grooming and, and, and kind of look fresh because you, you look fresh and you feel fresh, you know. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I think my self-esteem has gone up quite a lot just by being able to go to the barbers and get a trim. Like the last couple of months lockdown, I felt terrible, mate. You say what, you're a catcher again, yeah? Well, I don't know about if I'm a catch. That's that's maybe <laughs> for the ladies to discuss, you know. Um, but, uh, but hold on, I, I, bro. I you know, good. you have to believe it for, for for women to believe it, right? Yeah, seek it, speak it, believe it. Yeah, most 100%. definitely. Um, well, I, you know what they they say: beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so that's why I always think to myself, you know, I I just mm. do what I do, and if somebody likes it, then they like it. That's up to them, you know. I'd like to think that they do. I hate <laughs> Um But yeah, we, we do have a special guest with us today. Unfortunately, our other co-host, Ben, is unavailable today. Um, but we do have a special guest. Um, she is a person in politics, a person who is an academic, a person who is a devout Muslim. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce Councillor Kaltum Osman Rivers. How are you today, Councillor? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you guys for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Quite excited. Awesome. It's nice to have you with us. Um, what's, what's the way is the actual most appropriate way for us to address you? Should we be addressing you as Councillor or should we be calling you Ms. Rivers, Madam? <laughs> no. Right, right honourable say- colleague. <laughs> But I think we've got another Cal here, so Cal Toom is fine. Um, we could call you Cal for sure. Uh, maybe I can go with K or something like that, whatever's good. Or K1, K1 and K2, like Ash suggested before. Yeah, Cal Squared. Cal Squared. <laughs> Can't be that. It was quite fun to um, find out that you're, you know, everyone calls you Cal, and I was like, C A L? No, K-A-L. Oh, wow. Like me. How cool. <laughs> and every day you meet someone with the same name as you, is it? Nice. Um, so the first thing I noticed about your name was that, um, well, obviously you told me that you're a Muslim, but it seems that you have a Christian name. Um, is that right? I have a Western name. So it's not your typical African Muslim name. Um, my husband is uh, of British white, and uh, his surname is Rivers, but his first name is also Chris, but we're both Muslims. So he's, his, his other name is Yonis, and so we've taken, I've taken both my name 
and my uh, family name, so Osma Rivers is the correct name, but most most people just take the Rivers as my surname. Oh, wow, amazing. That is a nice name. I actually thought your husband has an interesting name as well because there's a rapper with exactly the same name. Really? <laughs> yeah, he's a pretty good rapper as well. So well, it's a good name what? to have. Is he American? Because we found loads of American, uh, especially black Americans with the surname Rivers. Um, he is an American uh, and he is of uh, like a, a Hispanic Latino kind of persuasion. Perfect. He's actually the son of a famous, a more famous rapper, Big Pun. Ash, I'm sure you know all about Big Pun. Yeah, of course. Oh. Uh, the son of Big Pun is Chris Rivers. He's oh, wow. A good rapper as well, yeah. I'm going to look up soon and say, look, yay. He's got, <laughs> he's got, he's got puns, um, he's got puns teeth. <laughs> <laughs> he's got puns flow as well, man. He's dope. Um, so it's it's an interesting story that that, mm. that you've got, uh, Carlton, which I'd love to to share with our our listeners. Um, so I think you were born and raised in Somalia, is it? Can you can you tell us a little bit about your background yeah. and sort of growing up in Somalia and how you ended yeah. up coming over here to the UK? I know. Um, I would love to. Um, like many many people you see from the Somalia background, um, civil war was one of the problems that brought us in the 90s and 80s. Um, I was born in, in Somalia, uh, a part is not, that's now independent called Somaliland, and it used to be the British colonial part. Uh, and I think um, one, of the, one of the things that I need to share is that when you when you live in a country where you're just growing up as a child and then you go to another country, you, um, have I, you, you kind of become um, homeless, country-less, you kind of feel that you're not, um, you don't have your family around you. But I came here as a refugee child myself Um, uh, sorry, I don't know whether you guys can hear me. No, oh, yeah, no, we can, we can. Okay, I came, he- I came to the UK um, as a as a child, but um, you automatically become a refugee child if your family who were here were under the um, refugee status. Um, and I went to my first uh, school in primary in Somalia, but in my secondary school, um, most of it I. I went to a school in Neeston called Cho- used to be called Chonkeli, um, and now it's oh, wow. Press Community College. Um, I didn't speak any English at all. I was just, you know, just listening to people and <laughs> kind of follow the crowd kind of thing. Um, and my story is like many other uh, young people who came in the late 80s, early 90s. We were literally just running away from a dictatorship that wouldn't uh, even save children. So um, it was the, it was quite dangerous for young children, especially girls, to be in that, in that area um, at that time. And and then after 30 years, I'm, I'm still here. And this is, this is my second home, especially London. Um, wow. So how I come to be a politician, I think that will follow. But my story of being a, a Somali, um, is one of the things that 
I think about sometimes all the all the racism that people are talking about and people talk about and and how I felt it, but I didn't really uh, understand it when I was back home. I didn't really get it when I was in Somalia. Mm. But um, it's only the UK realized I'm actually black because people kind of point to the the color of your skin. So although this is my home, um, it's a home that taught me how life could be completely different if you're a young black child. <laughs> wow, so are you kind of saying when you were in Somalia, you didn't even know you were black until you came over here? What, what age did you come over here? It's not... When, you, when I was in Somalia, I was, I was nine and just going to be ten. But you don't... You do know... Of course, you know you're black. You're in a mm. black continent. You're in Africa. Mm. Um, but everything you celebrate, you celebrate the religion and the culture and the tradition. And, and, and your gender, but you don't really, no one is going to point out at you and say, you know, go back to where you came from, you don't belong here because mm. that's where you are. Um, and also, when I was growing up, there weren't many other um, ethnicities, only those who were working for the UN or um, teaching in schools in Arabic or from um, India. Um, but in that sense, there was no racial issues going on um, against me or the others, because it wasn't a thing. What One thing that was against uh, me and others was the fact that Africa has other problems, like tribal problems, religious problems, um, regional problems. And so that's why um, I ended up in the UK, because of the tribal and the regional issues. But the race issues was not a big thing until I came to the UK and realized, actually, in this school, they call us different names, don't they? <laughs> mm. You mentioned you mentioned John Kelly, so I'm I'm actually from West London myself, Lubbock Grove. Oh wow! So kind of like yeah, so Stonebridge is just down the road from me, and my, some of my older cousins went to John Kelly. How did you find living in Northwest London? Because it is quite a multicultural area. Um, oh. How did you find living in Northwest London? I I felt I when we first I lived in different places. So in the beginning, um, my sister who passed away uh, ten years ago. And I have lived in Paddington, and then and I was used to go to school from Paddington, take the 16 to all the way <laughs> to Meesden, where John Kelly is. And we also lived in Etchway Road, and we lived in that kind of area. Finchley wow. with my other sister. But once we were given a flat to live in, in a place called St. Raffs, which stays with my heart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, I, Sounds like you know about that place there, Ash. Oh, yes. Bro, bro, everyone should know about Sam Raffs. Yes. <laughs> it, I, I feel very proud that I actually have grown up in Sam Raffs uh, because it taught me a lot of the issues that I am now addressing, now dealing with in politics. But um, I found it really amazing. Our next-door neighbour, when we first moved in, um, was from Guyana. But she looked so much like my mum. I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we could be in different continents. And then I was like, oh my God, you look like one of my aunties. And you know what? Everybody was like a family. Everybody looked after each other. And, you know, it was really nice to grow up in the area where at that time, and when I say at that time, it's 91, I'm talking about. Um, bus, buses and trains, uh, sorry, buses and taxis didn't used to come to some roughs. And, mm. you know, they would drop you off at the IKEA, 
Um, yes, yes, and, yes. And they wouldn't even come in. And you're like, well, you, I just, why are you not coming? And for me, that was home. You know, everyone who lived in these flats and these houses, for me, they, that's, that was home. I was like, Ugh, all right there, guys, if you don't want to come in, of the good for us. But it meant that the place was obviously not infested on. There was mm. not much going on for the community. And when you're young, that's your home. You know, everybody's scared of your area, but you're not, you know. I mean, me being an East Londoner, um, that was one of those areas in London that, you know, we kind of we kind of mm. knew had a bit of a reputation. People would say, you know, Stonebridge, Wembley, um, Halsden, Halsden, Stonebridge, you know, the, the, you know, you'd have to kind of, there's times when I went down there, there was a radio station I used to go down to when I was making music around there. And um, I used to make sure I always go and check for my mate Junior before I go walking around there because, you know, I want to make sure I'm with somebody and I know somebody around there. Um, but it's it's interesting hearing like <laughs> the experience of you guys because obviously it's like whatever the reputation is, it might be different if you're actually just living there. Mm. But I don't know. Did you guys feel like it was it was perfectly fine and maybe um, maybe you had a bit a bit of a bad bit of a bad rap? Well, for me, um, I remember um, there are young people I work with in in, in Sheffield. Um, and some, sometimes I'm trying to tell and explain to them where I grew up. I'm not like your normal mom, if you like. Because some of the moms are the same age as me, of these young boys in, in Sheffield. And I'm like, you don't know. I mean, I used to walk through a group of young men standing around and they would just move away and I'd walk through. And then they might know me, they might not know me. I'm from some raps. They're like, yeah, she's one of us. So, <laughs> so for me, I didn't actually, even though I was like... Um, there's the new Somali kid on the block, really, if you like, because there were only three families when we first moved to St. Ralph's, and now there's so many of them. Um, still, I was recognisable, and I didn't think there was anything wrong. But then, I know there were areas in, in London that I didn't really feel safe to go to, because mm. I've never, at that time, I've never been to Tottenham or Finsbury or, you know, in areas in the north, um, and definitely not the east, so... I kind of kept myself in that I'm safe in some raps and, you know, N NW10 area, not really go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to come to Leighton or Leighton Stone. That's, that was definitely the hardest part of London. Like, you know, all of the bad men like myself, obviously, were there. So you don't want to go around. Swear? <laughs> Are you breaking up, Carl? Breaking up? You said something that was mad, so I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um... But uh, you you mentioned Sheffield just now, Cal. Um, so you were sort of growing up in or living in London as a youngster, yeah. And then you ended up moving to Sheffield. How did that happen? I know. So on one hand, we're talking about all this excitement and all this like Northwest London and you know my own territory and my own area. Um, I moved to um, Oxford for to study. Um, and then ended up in Sussex, in Brighton, where I finished my education, um, most of it, and then secured a job in Sheffield at the university and then moved here 15 years ago. Uh, so that's how uh, my family and you know, my husband and I, and at that time we only had one child, uh, we moved to Sheffield, uh, we secured a job. But it kind of became a home for me as well, because if you're bringing up you know, young family. Uh, Sheffield is very, it's much more kinder as well in where I grew up in terms of 
um, because it's smaller, the community is very connected. Usually the north is very friendlier than, than us, I think, in the southeast. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it, this became home as well. Um, I didn't only work at the university, I worked with um, philanthropy sector. I finished my first master's um, about six years ago. And, and I, I stayed here. I just remained, had three more children in Sheffield. So I've got Yorkshire kids. So yeah. Wow, that is, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> like, you know what I find funny? So you, you said that the North are slightly more kind of friendly. What, why do you think that is? I think it's a, it might be a cultural Yorkshire thing. I mean, obviously, I've, I've lived, you know, I, I, I don't remember. Um, when I lived in Oxford, this is, this is me. The Somali culture is very nomadic. Uh, people move around to, you know, and not necessarily now. I'm talking about in the old days. People actually lived in a nomadic life where they kind of camel headers, and, you know, like thousands and thousands of years ago. I think I've got that little bit of culture in me where I think every country, every city I move to, I'm going to try and find out the cultural perspectives of being accepted and belonging. Um, and I lived in Oxford and I did not leave my my room, the, the dome, I haven't lit. I stayed there because I was too scared of what would happen to me because I didn't really understand. Um, and I had a lot more racial issues in Oxford than I have done in Sheffield. And even though it's in the southeast and much closer to London uh, or in the south, uh, I've also lived in Brighton where some areas of Brighton um, black students couldn't go and in fact one of our students was badly attacked and um, we also were followed by trucks and you know guys and only the black students were had to be looked after at night time um, because the university was open but in terms of areas I think in Sheffield I haven't really received as many racial issues I've received in in, in Brighton, not necessarily Brighton, but the surrounding, the university surrounding. Um, so, and I think it's a, it's a Yorkshire cultural thing. I think the Yorkshires are a lot more friendly. I mean, on the bus, when you talk, people are talking to you, you're like, oh, this is really great. I got used to it now, and now I talk to people. But when I come to London, if I talk <laughs> to people, they'll be like, whoa, is she crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Me mugging. You know, just on the, just, just vex on the bus, like, well, I this lady talking to me. But it's an interesting point because I do think that um, the kind of the village or the kind of like cultural vibe of a small city is everyone, you kind of see people a little bit more regularly. So it's almost like you have that informal kind of bond with them. Whereas in London, you can see so many different people so many different times and the pace is so quick that it's not really about doing that. It's about getting from A to B. So yeah, culturally, I can kind of see why that could be that, why that could be the case. You know what I thought was interesting? How you mentioned um, kind of going through some racial issues in different areas. Um, and I wondered, because obviously, you know, we're, we can see you on the camera. We can see that you're kind of wearing a headscarf and everything. And we know that you're a Muslim. And I wondered if there was any overlap there between maybe you being dressed a certain way and then being perceived a certain way, or if it was purely just based off the color of your skin. Some of the things that if you're a, if you're a 
Muslim women with all the Islamophobia rhetoric that's just kind of gone through even minstrels or people saying. Um, if you if you look at the the Islamophobia now and then you add the fact that my skin's brown, I've got that devil whammy where, you know, mm. I think I might even just notice the fact that somebody is looking at me or or muttering something because of the hijab on my head. Would they do the same thing if I was just not wearing the hijab and, and was black, I think they still would because that prejudice stays with that person. Whether they're just hating the, the religion or, or the color, racist is a racist. Um, I have been in situations where I had extensions and I don't, I'm part-time hijabi, you've probably seen my Twitter, I'm not wearing a hijab. Mm. Uh, and I, I've seen where I had long extensions on the bus and I received the same thing as I did when I was wearing the hijab. And it's a really good kind of experiment to do, uh, to kind of walk around with it. You know, if, if, if I take my, my white friend and put a hijab on her and I just walk with her, which one of us would be looked at? And I think we'd both be kind of looked at the, the kind of more negative way. So, it's, so I get the double... Um, in my intersection, the intersectionality around me is is quite, you know, that kind of thing where I am a Muslim, I'm a woman, I'm hijabi, mm. and I actually have a disability. So that's the that's the oh, wow. thing. So every time I'm thinking about um, discrimination, I don't know which one I'm actually even myself. I'm suppressing mm. while I'm speaking for the other. <laughs> mm. Um, do you think maybe you could also get uh, frowned upon by some people in the Muslim community? Like, you know, you mentioned the phrase part-time hijabi. Could they be saying, you're not a real hijabi, you're only a part-time hijabi? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, honestly, I, when we talk about racism, and I always say this, and I want people to understand that we're not just saying racism is one side and discrimination is one side. If I say to you that I have actually received a lot more racism towards my husband and kids from the Somali community than the white mm. community. Would you believe that? That's wow. what happened to me when I first moved to Sheffield, when I first got married to my husband. So there's, there's always that kind of thing. And if somebody wants to attack me, they usually attack my children's color rather than me from the community I'm talking about, from the Somali community. Uh, and from the, not necessarily from the other Muslim community. But yeah, there's also that... Um, uh, police in the hijab thing that happens. I am Muslim, I pray, but the hijab is actually a choice. It's not really a, 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 a process that is um, burdened on you, and it shouldn't be, because it's between you and your God, so it's not really something that somebody should decide. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's what you said there is so telling, because when we... Um, when I knew it was kind of coming on and we done some of the research, one of the questions, it's, it's, it's not a question, but I'm supposed, like you said, there's certain, there's many different things about you that could potentially be oppressed or be kind of like the subject of prejudice as such. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I wanted to ask the question as to whether one happens more than the other, but do do, do you feel more deeply about one, whether it be race, religion, um, gender, disability like is there one of these particular ones that kind of affects you more than than the rest i would honestly say race because i've i feel that um 
there's a lot more. I don't really. I, I, I'm trying to be careful because sometimes I, I say to people, I'm going to speak my mind and I am going to speak my mind today. There are so many institutions that I've, I, I've gone through from a young age until now. I'm, I haven't been looked after by social services or anything like that. But the fact of the matter was we've been negotiating the, negotiating the system for me to have a good school, good home, and all that. And when I go back, everything I see was more racist than Islamophobic. Um, it wasn't because we were two girls trying to negotiate the system for me to go to good school, get the, you know, f funded university and that. It was more about our race rather than our religion or our, our gender. Um, even now, I have seen and experienced more racism even within the council I'm in than Islamophobia. Mm. Where there's the stereotypes of who I am, um, and stereotypes of, oh, she, she knows everyone who is black and wearing hijab, so basically anyone who's African hijabi. So the race always comes up first. Um, and I also know there are things that I have not been incited to because I of the, the, the race, the color of my skin. And I'm not just being a paranoid, it's actually where I tested and thought maybe I should try and see if one of my friends can get through. And they do. And so it's all these, mm. all this. So for me, I think the one that stands out more is, um, is my race and everything else. Because the thing is, and I say this, religion is choice that you actually followed a faith. Um, but you have, I have not chosen to, to be brown or black. It's my race. It's the one that I was born with, the one that you mm. should accept first before you accept anything else. And if you don't accept that one, you're not going to accept anything else that comes with it. Mm. I like that. Um, and what, what I also really like is the fact that even though you've gone through these hardships and this discrimination, you haven't let it hold you back. You know, you've, you, you, you've become an academic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your academic background and actually what you're doing right now? Yes, I can. So after John Kelly <laughs> and, and traveling around uh, to see my family in North America and, and, and actually went back to Somaliland at the time, I went to a college called Ruskin College and I did sociology, which um, that kind of put me on the air level that I didn't do very well in GCSE or, or other things. So when I did higher national diploma, um, it put me on the second year year of a university um, and that was really good chance for me uh, to do because I, I tried to become a, um, a nurse I didn't like nursing oh gosh blood this and that you know you're, when you're young you just think that it's really glamorous to do one thing and then so I think deep down I've always been a social scientist so I did uh, uh, sociology in, at Ruskin College and then I went to University of uh, Sussex to do social anthropology and development studies and in that I've done a bit of research here and there. My first job was completely different because it, my first job was um, I was an advocate for asylum seekers um, for a year um, and that kind of put me in the human rights and social justice um, kind of mind to do something with my social science background. 
Um, and Can then you just I quickly moved... explain social anthropology for those, which included me, <laughs> that aren't really too well versed in that subject? You know, um, it's, it's a study of, of humankind. It's basically my, what, the part I was studying was uh, in America, they've got cultural anthropology. So they study the culture of societies, whereas social anthropology studies the societies within their culture, kinships and, and the environment. Um, and for me, when I was studying that, I was thinking, yes, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get rid of all these UN people who are in, in, in Africa and then we're going to, you know, take over and do it ourselves. And I don't really like people do, depending on aid um, in Africa. And I think it's one of the things that kind of cripples the whole, whole system of the African um, economy. But that's for another day. So uh, <laughs> that's a big discussion, that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so the um, the anthropology for me, I kind of opened the doors because one of the reasons why I did was anthropology was the the uh, discipline that allowed the colonialists to colonize um, Africa and Asia, and so it's specifically Africa. So it was literally uh, was what was used to learn the culture, the kinship. The region and 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 then now all the divisions you see is the colonial legacy and they've used anthropology. So for me, I was trying to learn uh, how to support, help, basically maybe go back to Somalia, and and kind of help that. But years later, um, I have started doing my masters when I was pregnant with my child number three, who's now six years old. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, That's three blessings you've got there. I've got four. There's another one right after I finished my MA. <laughs> so I, I, I did that. Um, I did my master's in education, looking at globalizing education policy and practice. But that was also my research was on autism. I was looking at the how Somalian communities specifically, um, what knowledge have they got about autism? Because there's quite a lot of stigma around it, there's loads of boys being excluded from school without being diagnosed with any um, educational needs. Um, and then, and now, um, I've got four boys, so now I'm not having any more children. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm having a, I'm now doing my master's, uh, which will be kicking off my PhD on um, serious youth violence. So, um, so, so can you can repeat that again? I'm, I'm doing my, I'm going to be next year, I'm going to be doing my uh, PhD in serious youth violence. Mm. And I'm looking at the, at the moment I'm just finishing my master's to, to start the PhD. Wow. Wow. What a journey. Long way of yeah. Um, did you find any difficulty with getting onto these courses? And uh, I understand you need to secure like funding for these courses and things like this. Yeah, of course. Um, the first masters, I first of all, my um, my first degree was funded by Brent Council. Uh, so I was one of the probably one of the last two intakes for the grant student grants. So I'm quite happy. Uh, that my council gave me that opportunity. Um, although my career services, who were also funded by the council, told me I will amount to nothing when I went to see them. But, 
but brand council allowed me to actually have my degree. Um, and then um, I self self funded the next uh, masters, but this one is fully funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, the White Rose. And yes, obviously it's a competitive. It's a, it's really competitive area, um, and it's much more difficult perhaps for um, black students to to gain all the other experiences in in order to get more of a um, postgraduate funding. I think things need to change and I think things are changing in terms of understanding. But yeah, it, it hasn't been easy to kind of try and find funding. I can imagine. Mm. Um, so, you know, hopefully with your obvious expertise in sociology, if there are any um, any young black people interested in that kind of thing, uh, hopefully they'll be able to reach out to someone like yourself. You might be able to, to steer them in the right direction. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, and um, talking about young people, um, at the moment there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on regarding politics. There, there was the suggestion that the voting age should be lowered to allow people as young as 16 to be able to vote and things like this. Um, well, you know, what, what's your opinion on, on young people being involved in politics? Well, I'll tell you a, a little bit of story about the fact that young people are, are already politicians. They're already involved because there are quite a lot of things that at the moment with Black Lives Matters and all these other things that young people are speaking of um, and they, they're having debates online. Um, my, I'm a locally elected councillor here in 2018. My age, and I'm thinking, and the first African woman to be elected in this area, and I'm thinking it took us that long, and I think one of your other guests said the same thing. It took them that long to actually, you know, for political parties to involve people of colour or people you know, from marginalised groups. Um, and I think it's the same thing for young people as well. So in every party you look at, the young people are not really standing. So I think they should be standing if they're already involved in their parties. But in terms of the activism that the young people are already involved or would like to get involved, I think it would be really great if the voting age is lowered to 16 because they are ready by then. But one aspect of our society and our our system that doesn't get young people ready for uh, political voice is education. I think, you know, there's, there's the curriculum needs to include some sort of how and what your voice would be. Because when you're talking to young people and you go and visit schools and you tell them that you're a counsellor, they don't know who you are, what you are. But you affect the policies that you make in the council affect their lives every day and their families and their communities. So if young people understood that they actually have voice and there is a whole part of the curriculum called citizenship or good citizen, that could actually be where we use to teach young people about their voice in, in politics. When it comes to uh, BME, or I don't really like to use that word, but when it comes to communities that you know feel that they are not represented in politics, I think every party needs to look into their own um, 
inclusiveness and diversity and race and say how many young people from these communities do we have? Because that's one thing that they don't look at and I think they should. And there are young Labour, young Lib Dems, young Greens, young, you know, Conservatives, but what exactly voice are you giving them and how are you supporting them? I think there's a lot young people do for this society that we're not counting as well. And I think we should count, we should actually appreciate, we should celebrate, but we should give them the empowerment and move away, you know, stand aside, let them do what, um, how to address what's affecting them. That's what we don't do. And even politicians, I, I say politicians, and I'm one of them, we need to actually move aside for young people to say what is affecting their communities and themselves. Ow, I thought that was really gracious of you to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, yeah. I, yeah. And I think you made, you touched on a point about schooling. Um, so I work in a school um, and you spoke about kind of knowing about po like politics and counselling. And, and what you tend to find is those who are politically active from an early age are those people whose family is are invested in politics from from an early age as well. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it is on the school system to do that as well. But I think as a as a race, as a as a community, I think we need to kind of do a little bit more in politics. And I think you're an amazing example of someone who's not only spoken about it, but actually done it and put yourself forward to be part of the political process so that if I was in Sheffield and and I saw you, I've got someone who looks something like me or, or represents some of the things that I may have gone through. Mm. And I think that's a really big part about representation. And I just think just by hearing you and speaking to you, like you embody so much of what representation needs to be. And yeah, it's just, it's just amazing to actually see you in your positions and to be so learned and to be so humble and to be so well-spoken. Like you just, you're amazing. Thank you. I will come to London if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> please, be a friend, be a student. Yeah, please do. That'd be amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you highlighted that, Ash, because I, I didn't actually really process it until you just said it now, that the fact that Cal is actually, you know, she represents being a, a black person. She represents being a woman. She represents being disabled. Um, you know, even maybe being a, a migrant. Um, these mm. are people from all of these separate groups will face some kind of discrimination and the fact that she's in all of those groups is <laughs> just amazing that somebody can rise to prominence from, from having those kind of hardships so yeah definitely well done to you Kautam and, and may you continue to prosper and to grow and and to inspire you know it's, it's, well, it's great to see you where you are thank you guys you're giving us a space to talk to you and and you know uh, we we do need these kind of opportunities to reach out to young people as well but you, you're making it possible for me to say if you want to talk to me about anything to do with you know activism and your voice and and any any issues that you think politicians in your area are not doing for you and and then i can say well this is what you should be asking <laughs> then i'm i'm all ears I'd love to know what the difference is between an activist and a politician, because because sometimes I think I think maybe sometimes the, the there isn't a very clear distinction, or is there? Well, um, I I would only say for me, I started my my politics in activism. Somebody said to me. Uh, when I was speaking, when I first won um, the seat here in the council, 
someone said to me, say something about how you started all this. And I said, well, you've only seen me in Sheffield, but you don't know what I've done when I was younger <laughs> to be active. Um, Could have been Nelson Mandela. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I, I think people meet you and then your whole life starts from there. But what people don't know is how, how much you've already have done in terms of activism. And for me, I think what drove my, my uh, politics is the activism behind me. And I'm the first person in my family to get involved in politics as well. So I didn't come from a family of politicians. I come from a family of academics. You know, all, my mom never went to school, but she made sure we all received education, that kind of thing. Um, she couldn't even read the papers, that letters that we, we bring home, but still she got the neighbors to read it, you know, for my older brothers. I mean. But the, the point of activism is, I remember when I was in Oxford, um, in this college, and I had a little drum. I, I had a drum, little small one, and I would carry that, take the bus to a place called Camsfield, where they used to keep asylum seekers um, and refugees um, a detention center. And I went on the bus, and then I would stand outside Camsfield detention center. I would just play the drums on my own, no one else. No one is around me. Um, and at that time, I might have been the, new, the Greta Thunberg of, of, of human rights at that time, but no one actually noticed that this young person is coming and she's just playing the drums, other than the uh, group four guys who were looking after the, you know, the security who would ask me, you know, move away from the gate, move away. But it turned out that the students in, the, in, the, in my college got involved. Uh, a friend of mine, Caroline Holmes, got involved and then the college made sure that we get back lunch every Sunday so we can go and campaign and do activist uh, rally outside the campus. So I kick-started that. But the, the point I'm making is that there are so many things that people do and, and become activists and then they still are not happy that things are changing. For me, I wasn't happy things were changing. I was trying to give people who look like me, boys, um, ask about Windrush, ask about racial equality in the council, ask about um, how we're reporting hate crime, ask about um, how many black people do we have in the council working as officers. If I'm not there, who's going to ask? How come people didn't ask before? So it's kind of like you, you can be an activist who's been changed the lives of people so many times, but still I was not happy. Until I became, and I'm still not happy. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, and I think you make a good point that it d does does real happiness even exist? Mm -hmm. So you you made a point of saying I'm I'm not happy yet, but does real happiness even exist? Well, in 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 my shoes, um, it doesn't. The only thing that makes me really happy is if mm. I. For example, if I go out of my house and I'm going to the shop to buy just uh, go to the halal meet and you know buy some food, um, I might see six people who, and then I I will come home not only with a bag of you know groceries but with casework, and then actually sorting that casework for them mm. straight away before I cook for my kids. If I get the responses from the officers and I've done that, that kind of makes me happy that moment mm. in terms of being a politician. But then. The other things that would make you happy, and we're talking about, uh, you know, politicians and politicians happy. 
I honestly think that politicians need to listen to different intersections of the community rather than mm. of people they represent, rather than just talking to BME community or black communication community, women, you know, elderly people. They need to literally understand who they're representing. Because if you come and stand and then people vote for you, you really do need to then go back and think, are they okay with this? Are they, have they received what they asked me? You have to keep going back. If you just get elected and you just sit back, mm. then you really are not happy. Well, I don't know what happy politician means, but <laughs> for me, I am not. <laughs> I'm still, I'm going to keep going though. I don't know what my happiness lies. I think my happiness lies with my, me finishing my, my PhD and using it through politics and academia to change the lives of young people. Maybe that would be, mm. where, you know, bringing academia and activism together. Amazing. Speaking of activism, obviously, um, the events during the lockdown and COVID period um, saw um, George Floyd be killed in America. Um, he was one of many people who have been um, subject to police, um, police brutality. Mm. Um, and that led, that sparked kind of the Black Lives Matter movement, which started a long time ago. I don't think, it's, this isn't something that started, that's been new. It started a long time ago and it really kind of um, exploded to a new level over the last few months. Um, what's been your opinion on Black Lives Matter in the UK? Um, and as someone, like you said, who has children who are of, of, of mixed heritage, um, how did they kind of interpret Black Lives Matter as well? For me, um, I think it has taken a long time for people to stand outside together and find allies as well from other groups um, and, and actually speak out. I, I watched a, a documentary about it the other day and I looked at just one person's voice stuck in my mind and I think mm. I kind of it resonated with me and many others and she said, now I can speak about it. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, that's how we, many of us feel. I can speak about it. And, and it's, kind of, it's very empowering for many, many black people who felt um, not be able to speak about it or, or even recognize when racism was really so blatant in their workplace. But they mm. didn't, because people around them didn't really have the privilege, were privileged enough not to see it, but you, you're not. So you've seen it, but you mm. didn't. And then you think, oh, they think I've got chip on my shoulder, the black card. You know, all these voices are suppressing voices that we hear. And I think people, uh, Black Lives Matter, which you, as you said, didn't mm. just start um, now and it has started a long time. Um, it's really good to see. I'm in supportive of it. I am really grateful to every person who has either organized and peacefully pr uh, protested. And I think majority of people have peacefully pr protested, but the media is really not very kind to people of colour. So I think the me media needs to look back at how, of, how their headlines have damaged communities mm. before Black Lives Matter came on board. And now we're asking, we're asking the questions and we're saying, why do you have this headline when you could have this headline? Mm. And so I think it, it gives us the power to question many, many platforms. And I think... I would say I'm not. I don't. I'm not going to say I think. I, I'm really grateful for those who are doing it and those who are giving my children 
for the so that they will be affected by this as well. Whether it's me walking with one of my kids being apart or whatever, they've, they've given my children the education of awareness of their race and the race that they are part of. Mm. And I think um, it's, I think it's giving it's giving young people as well uh, the education that um, that hasn't been given in the schools of decolonizing education or the curriculum or anything. It's I think Black Lives Matter is decolonizing a whole system and mm. questioning. And I think um, yeah, I support it. I'm, I'm great grateful that they also did it in Sheffield. It's, nice. it's, it's awesome to hear that there is some uh, some support. Sorry, Ashley, I sound like you was about to uh, to make a point. There. No, I was going to just say the exact same thing. Like that, like you said, the, the the reach that it had and. I know that my, my friend in Edinburgh, they, they put something on and it was such a unifying factor. So the fact that you felt that and it does that and you felt included in that is really, really important. Well, well I would, sorry, go on. Is that Cal? Uh, I was going to uh, <laughs> sort of make a slightly different point, so please continue. Mm. No, I was just going to say in Sheffield, we had, we had people, you know, you, there are, there's, there's the anti-racist and I'm not really racist kind of people. So, you know, you have to try and grab the anti-racist and say, this is what you've been trying to help me with. You know, let's, let's do it. Not, we can't say a whole uniform of race is racist. So we really have, we need people to recognize their own prejudice. And in that, is it in our place to educate them? They really do need to get the education by listening to the voices of those who who actually are saying you have to listen to us so i think a lot a lot black a lot of the black people i spoke to and myself i want my white allies to listen to me and i don't want to educate them i want them to listen to me and then go and educate themselves rather than me doing it um there's um there's one opinion i've heard within the black community um which is that you know they're they're not they don't have much confidence in the leadership of the Black Lives Matter UK organization. Now, you mentioned before, Cal, uh, when I asked you about the difference between an activist and a politician, and you mentioned that, you know, your past in activism has kind of helped you as a politician. So um, I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think, I mean, we know the Black Lives Matter UK, UK organization are very good activists. They're very good at protesting, organizing the protests. And they've even started a huge fund where they've uh, collated a million pounds worth of, of donations from their supporters. And so now people are asking questions. People are saying, you know, what's going on? Is, is it now a time for, for them to maybe be more like politicians? I honestly think, first of all, if you, although there's only a very small number of us black politicians um, and when I say black politicians I don't want people to think I'm talking about the BME I'm actually talking about black African Caribbean uh, community when you when you talk about black people and I, I make the distinction uh, on purpose because um, the BME term kind of hides loads of the struggle of the uh, black and African community especially the African Caribbean community in the UK um, there is not there are many of those in a higher position in politics. And I think those who have been on that platform, obviously they let the communities down as well. So I think we need to look into not a politician who's just got same color as us or same, same um, 
uh, what do you call it, background or culture, we need to look at a politician from our communities who really are going to make a difference and, and really are genuinely trying to change things. So if the Black Lives Matter activists are going to be those, then I would say, well done and go ahead. But if, if when you reach somewhere that you're going to completely just marginalize your own communities, and then I think uh, it needs to be, it's a discussion to have really, I think. You have to examine yourself and think, am I going to be a good politician that actually speaks for these people that have been um, campaigning for for so long? Is there anyone, in your opinion, currently in politics that could possibly, that you could see would be a good fit for Black Lives Matter and maybe they could help them out and give them a little, you know, a little bit of professionalism and, 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 and polish to their raw and, you know, just the passion and activism? I, in terms of the, the, the fact that I talked about the, the black community, um, I grew, when I grew up, when I told you where I grew up, St. Raphs, I remember meeting two people uh, in my life. I've never seen a politician before. Um, and then I met these two people. One was uh, um, a mixed race, uh, so I would say an African-Caribbean or African you know, community. Um, and the other was a white um, MP. And the first question I asked them was, why should I vote for you? <laughs> and it's one of these questions that young people should be asking anyway. Um, but I left the room thinking, the only reason you got loads of black kids in a room was because you brought them because they're your community and then you're going to forget all about us. And I think many people have that kind of history where the areas that they were representing were so run down. Um, and those areas are actually have been um, areas that where uh, African-Caribbean community or, 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 or African or black community lived in. So if I say to you in politics, oh gosh, you put me on the, on the spotlight. I, think, I, like, I like Don Butler. Um, I'm, I'm green, I'm not Labour, but there are, there are many green um, black politicians that I could actually uh, point out about from... Cleo in, in Bristol, uh, who's brilliant. Well, you said they don't need to be black as long as their, you know, their ideas maybe uh, align with what's going on with Black Lives Matter UK. No, I'm actually saying we need black leaders who actually are genuine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I, I'm not, I'm not going to hide behind anything because the, the point of it is we, we've, we have seen those who would take our voice and not change anything. But we need people who, from the communities, who understand, now we can say, you promised this to your community when we were uh, active, um, campaigning with you. And I think there's, um, I'm, I'm, I've been elected from the Green Party, there's good Greens of colour um, that I'm really linked to, uh, Rashid and others, and Cleo. But I also know that the MPs uh, from the Labour who, Benny Grant was somebody that when I was growing up, I was like, oh gosh, he's so good even he this guy, Benny Grant of Tottenham. Um, God rest his soul. Um, in Brent, there is uh, Don Butler. But I think black politicians need to lis really listen to their own communities first, where they have been elected. That's then they can actually move on to help with the Black Lives Matter. Um, I don't know anything about the Black Lives Matter committee as well, so I'll have to get to know them. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I think that that is a, a huge burning question in the black community at the moment. 
What's going on with this one million pounds that uh, the Black Lives Matter UK organisation has collected? And, you know, the current leadership structure, are they equipped to be able to deal with the responsibility and the pressure that they've now given themselves? Two, um, two things that really affect our communities, uh, black community, is um, fund, funds you know, that come in and, and also the... Um, the, the the self-esteem of I can do it myself. It looks like, it, it sounds, it might actually sound really controversial for me saying this, but it looks like for years and years, the black community have been told that we can give you a small amount of funding and then you kind of fight over that little bit of fund and different black community fight over that small amount of fund when other people are making decisions about yourselves. Uh, and the other, other bit is, can they do it themselves? So the bit of saying that can they do it themselves, I think we need to give them the chance, but we need to support them in, in what direction. And the question, question being asked is good, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I think um, we need to try and empower them, but to make sure that they are going through the right direction rather than a tick box direction, which is what damaged the community before. Right, so the gentleman from Brent, I think you said his name was David something, was it? The gentleman from Brent. Oh, yeah. his name was Paul Potting. <laughs> okay, maybe that's someone uh, that Black Lives Matter UK can reach out to. Uh, I, think, I think the support. person that Black Lives Matter can reach out to is Dawn Butler. I think she's, she'd be great. In, I don't really know her personally, but... Um, and David Lamy is, is another, but and there's also uh, in, in our greens we've, we we have me and we've got Cleo, um, Cleo from Bristol who was the Lord Mayor in Bristol. So we had you know black people in different parties who actually were Lord Mayors and, and councillors. Plenty of options there. So so let it be known then, Black Lives Matter UK. <laughs> if you guys are listening, we have a councillor with us right now. Support. There you go. Please do hit up Cal and uh, I'm sure she will give you all of the support that you guys need. Um, and definitely make sure you send us our 10% for our agency fee <laughs> for getting you your political 12, consultation. 12.5 so of that 1 million. <laughs> Just let people know. Just let them know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, last question I'd like to ask is, is about you know, how you've experienced lockdown. We've all been sort of bored and going out of our minds okay. at home at lockdown. Um, you know, Ash and I, we've spoken before on the podcast about stuff that we've done to keep ourselves busy or um, even just having a bit more time on our hands, things that we've done to be constructive, um, you know, learning new skills, reading books and things like this. Um, what kind of stuff have you been up to? I have, um, first of all, I'm not... I'm, I'm going to sound so, um, if this was coming from somebody else, it'd be like, oh my gosh, you should be a feminist. I'm not your normal, I'm going to get my hair done, nails done kind of girl. So um, I just shaved, I've shaved my hair <laughs> so I could actually have an afro uh, during the lockdown. So I've got a nice fish of afro now growing. It's not like we can see it because you've got your hijab on. So you, oh, you can. Oh, come on. I, you've seen it on my Twitter. Let me look. So oh, I there you go. Nice. Yeah. Can you That's see? Curly yeah, yeah, I can. Lovely. Yep. So I, so I have, 
um, I have been, I've been um, trying because I was homeschooling with my husband and the kids, um, two of them, uh, five and six. So we had to have a school on one side of the room. Um, and then we have a preteen, so we had to have another office uh, or classroom upstairs. But the best thing I've done is during their music lessons, I played the drums with them. So, cool. <laughs> so I made my own African drum, you know, sessions where if they were learning some some music or some dancing or some, you know, because they just like reception and, and year one, I did more African drumming and played loads of Somali music for them. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Ash, what do you think about homeschooling? You being a parent, I thought that sounds like a pretty interesting idea to talk about. Um, it's, I think it depends on the child. I've always said this, that depending on what your child needs is what you kind of do for them. So um, I remember going to um, a barbecue. This is a quick story. This is a quick aside. I went to a barbecue um, and this lady had two children. She had a boy who was um, 11, about to go to secondary school. And then she had um, a young lady who was 10 and who was in the year below below the, the son. So when they're saying, oh, what school is the boy going to? Oh, he's going to a boy's school. I was like, okay, cool, yeah, because that's right for him. And then next to that school is a girl's school. So they said, oh, so your girl will go to the girl's school next to that school. She's like, no, my girl's going to go to a mixed school. And everyone was like, I don't understand. Why would you send your boy to a boy's school and then send your girl to a mixed school? And she said, based off their personality, the boy needed to go to a boys' school to kind of toughen up. That's what she wanted for, for her son. However, the way that the, the, her, her daughter would socialise, she knew that she could still be a success in a mixed school. And actually, as parents, you want convenience, right? You'd rather have the two children in one school so it makes life easier for you. But actually, if, it doesn't, if it's not in line with how they should be as kind of people, you could be doing them a disservice. So for me... The answer to that question is, if if it was right for my child to be homeschooled, I would do homeschooling. If it's right for them to go to a boys' school, they'll go to a boys' school. If it's right for them to go to a grammar school, I'll try and get them into a, gra- a grammar school. It's it's always dependent on the actual child and what they're like. Yeah. I think that's an amazing perspective you've got on that there, actually. <laughs> a, a good example as well. I mean, my homeschooling, um, to be, while I was, while we were homeschooling, I was also writing my um, my masters, so um, all the all the classes being cancelled and everything. So there's quite a lot of online learning for all of us. Um, but most of the time, I think I kind of found the six of us living, the six of us living in the house, you know, uh, nowhere to hide from the kids. So you just have to just let them come into your Zoom meetings and your <laughs> university lecture meetings. <laughs> But I think it's been, for us, honestly, it's been fine. We've been healthy, and uh, I had to self-isolate um, a few weeks ago, but that's because the nature of my work, and, and that's, um, but that's, it's been fine. I've been, I've lost quite a lot of friends, um, friends and family to COVID-19 in London, especially. Sorry to hear Yeah, and uh, thank you. And it, it did hit the, the, you know, BME community quite harshly, didn't it? So, yeah. It's been a tough time. Um, talking about having a tough time, somebody else who's had a tough time is Nick Cannon. Um, so, yeah, for those that don't know, Nick Cannon is a, an American entertainer. Uh, 
probably most known for his TV show called Wild and Out, which is on an American TV network. Um, but, you know, you can always catch the little clips on YouTube and stuff. Um, and uh, recently he's been fired. He's been fired from his show for some comments that he made on his own independent podcast. So that kind of thing, uh, you know, me and Ash should be sweating a little bit because <laughs> if we say something crazy on PRB, it's, it is quite possible that uh, it could get to our employer and we could end up getting fired like like what happened with Nick Cannon. So, um, yeah, I was just wondering if you were aware of that uh, scenario there, Caltum, and what your thoughts were on Nick Cannon being fired from his show. I have seen, I have seen a, a, just a bit of it. Um, and I think we've got similarities here going on in the UK as well now. But I think the comments he made were, were anti-Semitic comments. And in, in one of the videos I've, I listened to, he was saying, um, we are the Semites, aren't we? We're all the same people. So I'm not being you know, negative, I'm just saying. Uh, but I think there is a difference between attacking people, the, the natural or, or country. So it's two different things. If you're actually talking about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, I think it's been quite easy for people either to be accused very quickly or for people to just go and go on a rant and then later on say, no, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm not Islamophobic. And I think there's no need, if you have that kind of platform, it's better to use it for the positive side of including people in 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 the dialogue or, or the conversation of equality but if you are a black man and you're talking about like that then i think it's it, it for me and i don't really know the whole story but if if you're talking about that you should really then if you're gonna later on say i'm sorry i didn't mean it that way you really do need to think about how many people you are uh, harming or affecting people who just love you for what you do or mm. people who would stand up for you or people who would stand up for people who look like you so you're marginalizing loads and loads of people by actually not um, being careful about what you say and it's not just about being careful and then say it in closed doors in, in your heart mm. really think about who you're harming and who you're damaging social harm is a huge thing that we kind of live on live with if it happens to us I should have expected a political, a politically correct answer from you there, Cal. <laughs> Ash, well, uh, uh, how do you feel about that? Should 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 Nick Cannon be political on his own independent platform, be politically correct, or should he be able to say whatever it is he wants? Because they're supposed to have freedom of speech in that country, aren't they? It's always difficult because you can say something with every intention behind it. But then once someone gets it and spins it or, or adds their kind of agenda or their stance, then your words can look very different. So, and I think when you have certain platforms, you have to kind of be mindful or you're kind of trained to be mindful. I do find it quite difficult. I do think there are certain things that need to kind of be said. Um, but again, it's that whole idea of saying there are certain, there's, there's, there's certain things that kind of lots of people want to say but probably haven't been able to say. Um, and it is really interesting because, like, um, like Cal, Cal, she's Cal One now. You can be, Cal <laughs> two. Um, yeah. Like Cal One said, we've had something like that with um, Wiley recently putting out some tweets and and saying some things. And I just think that it's it's really difficult to get the right balance between wanting to really say something and then 
almost saying it with a with a purity in your heart, but then having to then almost alter or backtrack because other people are taking it some way. That freedom of speech is there, but it needs to be protected because if someone came up to me and said something really offensive, I could say, yeah, you have your freedom of speech of saying that, but it is offensive. And we are in a we are in a society now where people tend to be offended by very little. It doesn't take much for people to become offended. Yeah. And it doesn't take much for the momentum behind that offence to kind of carry it to to new levels. Um, and I just think we're in a state where, for instance, we're very mindful about how we are and what we want to do and how we want to be represented. And I think sometimes we need to kind of afford that that we afford that thought to other areas of life as well. Having said that, anytime someone says something, you never fully know the real meaning behind it. So he's come out saying everyone knows me, I don't have any malice in my heart, I'm, I'm all about bringing people together, that he could very much have done that and maybe what he said was misconstrued or wasn't executed in, in the best way possible. But then at the same time, sometimes you just want to say it as it is. It's really difficult, it's really difficult. It is, oh, I hear you. Um, there, there is <laughs> my political response earlier. Mm. Um, it, is, it is really difficult. There are specific things, like for example, um, if I tweet something about what's happening in Palestine, it's it's about the the government rather than the people. So, but still, somebody would just look at the hijab on my head and say, "Oh, look, she's talking about." And it's not anti-Semitism. It's actually just saying that is not. And then it's the language, it's the terminology people use. I've seen so many people who have been so derogatory online and everywhere, and they have nothing has happened to them. And then the day that somebody says something, it, people actually kind of take it the wrong way. Or and so when I when I said that, you know, he's he did actually say we're all children of you know Semites. We all come from the same place. And I think many um, many black people obviously believe the the closeness of of Jewish people and, and black people in 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 America. Um, it's a different politics. It's, a, it's like how, it, you know, I don't really want to say something that I don't really believe in. I think he apologized and I don't really understand if you're independent, if you're not openly being racist or anti-Semitic or, uh, you know, sexist or, you know, homophobic and all these other issues that your words are being watched if you're actually on a, on a media so uh, or if you're a politician. <laughs> you just have to be careful and then where does freedom of speech then sit into I mean people can say really bad things about the queen in Hyde Park Corner and and you know still do but then if you actually say uh, some things that they might be taken the wrong way see I do love speakers corner I do love that I, I, I have been a regular in the past I do need to go again obviously with COVID-19 okay. <laughs> breaking out you're definitely not getting me congregating in large spaces up in a in in a Hyde Park with loads of people down there. But I will be there again. And, and like you say, people will stand up on their soapbox and have a good rant. A lot of the time you get um, religious rhetoric, um, oh, yeah. different political ideology. Um, and, you know, maybe some of it can be seen as hate speech. You know, if somebody like, say, uh, Abu Hamza got on his soapbox at Speaker's Corner and decided to start talking about bringing in Sharia law and doing all kind of, you know, people might say this is hate speech, cut him off. Um, But for me, just me personally, I I absolutely love freedom of speech. 
And I think no matter who it is, if, if it's someone like Tommy Robinson that wants to talk about BAME people, as they call us, you know, OK, it might be offensive to me, but OK, that's your opinion. And I know there's people that resonate with you. I would like to hear what they have to say. I want to hear that voice. Yeah. You know, if there's someone like Jordan Peterson, who people say um, is a bigot or a misogynist, um, and he might say stuff that offends me, I want to hear what he has to say. I want to hear that opinion. I just like to hear what people think, you know? And I don't think we should be scared and having knee-jerk reactions and firing people as a consequence of, of people speaking their mind. Um, with the Nick Cannon scenario, personally, I, I don't think that it was grossly offensive stuff, but then who am I to, you know, I, I'm not um, a person of Hebrew descent. I am not a, a person who is Jewish or someone who would claim to be an Israelite and then be offended by him saying you're not the true Israelites my people are the true Israelites so you know mm. because it doesn't offend me then maybe I shouldn't really comment on how offensive that comment was or not but um I feel sorry for the lad I do think like Ash said I think um, you know Nick is a is a, is, a, is a decent dude um and maybe I, I think Ash specifically said something like he's uh, has pure intentions or good intentions, pure of heart, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think Nick Cannon, is a, he's a good dude. He's been hard done by, but uh, he did put out a huge statement where he kind of said he wanted to take ownership of the Wild and Out brand. And I do think that, that that should happen. If that's a brand that he's created and they fired him from the network, they should allow him to take his brand with him so he can continue doing the Wild and Out brand independently and in that way, I think that will probably be a happy ending for Nick Cannon, really. So yeah. um, I, I hope something like that does happen. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, so so we move on. Ash, you mentioned uh, that Cal brought up before we started recording about a little rant that Wiley went on. Mm. So Wiley was ranting some anti-Semitic comments on Twitter. Um, I don't really know what to make of that. I haven't uh, looked into too much of that. Um, another person that's been ranting on Twitter is Kanye West. Um, wow. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you guys have saw the rants that came from Kanye, but it's, it seemed, there's two ways to look at it. It seemed like, okay, he's concerned about his family. He's, he's talking about his daughter and the relationship he has with his wife. And he's saying, you know, I don't want my daughters grow, growing up and, and being in Playboy and stuff like this. Um, and, and it just makes you think, what? I mean, yeah, I mean, any concerned father would probably think like that, wouldn't he? So it seems perfectly fine. But when you consider that Kanye married the type of woman that does mm. adult think that's like literally what she does, you know, you're the one that decided to have a child with uh, an adult actress or, an, or a person who does... Uh, um, adult erotic um, things as part of her career. So if, if that kind of influence would rub off onto your child, mm. then the, kind of like you made your bed, you got to lie in it, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know. He said he said a number of things. He said the movie Get Out was about me. Um, he, he said low. Like, I don't know. What do you guys make of, of these kind of... And then also, remember, Kim's also come out to speak, to say he is bipolar and um, yeah. has kind of confirmed. I mean, listen, I, I got sent a lot of stuff about this this week. And I'm, and it's, it's weird. There seems to always be something because he, he launched that he wanted to run for um, 
become the president. Um, there's some new music that's meant to come out from him soon. Um, he's been in collaboration with Dr. Dre. There's now this. Some, you know, my my thing now is, is this real or is this part of a marketing play? You can never, you can never separate the two anymore. And I think that's 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 telling of the current environment because if he's got some tapes coming out in a couple of weeks, all of a sudden this is all wrapped up. He's done all of this stuff. Everyone's gonna go and see what else is on the tape. Or is it just that he's really in need? And I think I think if I'm honest, I think there's it's a bit of both. I think there's some new stuff that's coming out, but I do think Kanye hasn't maybe kind of handled certain things in a positive manner. All the, going all the way back to when like his mum passed, like going that far back, because the Kanye I see then to now is completely different. And we all grow, and we all take on new new things. And obviously, he's got a family now, and certain things have changed about him. But but yeah, I just think I just with, with him, I, I never actually know whether this is genius, this is like lunacy, this is mental health. This is a, a, a marketing campaign. I, I I don't actually know where to place this with him. Right. Your thoughts I, on that, Cal? <laughs> no, I, I was actually um, agreeing with Ash. I think, um, first of all, one of the, the, the nice side of, of me say, is saying that um, Bipolar is unrecognized in the black community most of the time. Um, so if, say, Kenya was... Um, a homeless man or somebody who lives in a, in a state, you know, projects or council house somewhere, um, they would go in, in and out of um, the health sector until they put them in, in jail or prison or, you know. So in that sense, I wonder if he does actually have bipolar disorder, in which case, you know, it, it, it would explain a lot, including him saying Harriet, you know, Tubman didn't really help slaves. I mean, it's a black man coming out with that was like, oh gosh, is he okay? So that's the first part that you have to think about the whole aspect of it and how how he's been quite erratic since Donald Trump got hold of him as well. So there's, there's quite erratic things going on. It's like all over the place. He's uh, so sometimes I'm thinking that's that's the part, a good part of me. The other part of me is the, is thinking. Seriously, maybe he's just, like you said, uh, Ash, maybe he's just wanted to use it and mm. to use this as a market. But one thing is true. Um, a poor man in his position in terms of the, if it, there's a mental illness going on or, or the marital issues um, mm. would not be on this, on this platform that everyone is talking about him. There's many people who are suffering from bipolar who no one really... Um, notices so if he's if he's got bipolar and he can get the help then at least everybody's looking at him and then he can get that help but he's done quite a lot of damaging in ranting uh, about mm. things, you know and and uh his his wife keeps saying he's bipolar and since his mum died as well actually the you know being erratic and started but i don't know as soon as i saw him with donald trump i just kind of closed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just close your eyes and pray. I prayed for the universe, and then, and then you know, and then we we lost people like you know innocent people into institutional racism in America. And I'm thinking seriously, you could actually take part in that and supporting 
the Black Lives Matter over there instead of doing this. But maybe he's not well. Maybe. Um, maybe. Should should Kanye be getting cancelled? Because, you know, we've seen Nick Cannon have his anti-Semitism rant and he's got cancelled. He's got fired from his show. We've seen Wiley have his anti-Semitism rant and um, apparently he's been fired from his management company. Um, okay. We've yeah. seen Kanye have just random outbursts Things that seem random, like Ash said, could it be genius? Could it be a marketing, some kind of a genius marketing PR plan to promote something that's going to come out soon, maybe a new album drop in? But at the same time, he's also got this business deal with Gap on the table. Mm. So the timing of this, could this be something where the Gap decide, we don't want somebody like you on the Mm. board of our, you know, on our executive board, should they cancel him? Uh, can I just say something about cancel culture? I'm completely against it anyway. Yeah. I think cancel culture is ridiculous. Like, we're going to cancel someone. People make mistakes all the time. And I think um, the big thing that happens, and there's some people that continue to make mistakes, that's fine. But it's more to do with the oxygen that you give people allows them to kind of continue. So I was just reading through um, um, an article and they referenced that K.E. Hopkins was... Um, pulled from twitter because she was spewing spewing certain things so should the likes of let's say wiley or 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 that be pulled from twitter and how can these things be allowed to go um like unabated and i just say to myself everyone who retweeted her or everyone who kind of like posts it up again you're just kind of like fanning her flames and i think we should just get to a point where we need to stop making these people so important these instagram posts these things on twitter so important and actually, that's how you then just kind of move on from these things. And in terms of cancelling, you just remove that person from your from your timeline. And if everyone did that, then you wouldn't actually have to formally cancel someone. They would naturally just regress to where they need to be. Well, I'm glad you said that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I saw one of the tweets and I looked at uh, who tweeted it and I thought, a prominent person, prominent in a in terms of the 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 arts or the you know, is saying why is Wiley still got Twitter, but he did he say that when Kate Katie um, Hopkins was just she there's nothing in this world that she didn't say about in terms of race in terms of um, Islamophobia everything everything, and I'm wondering okay he did say something wrong let's just say but this cancelling. If people who actually sat through that and didn't do anything are now the same people who are after uh, Wiley. So if he's done something wrong, I get it. He needs to go. That might be fine. But where were these people when Katie Hopkins was doing all all kind of sort of things? Mm-hmm. Where young people, actually children and young people were reading. My 12-year-old knows who she is and hates. Mm. And the word hate is not a big thing. It's a big thing. It's not the kind of thing we talk about at my house, you know. But he says, I hate that woman because she defies the nation. She defies them. Uh, and who is she anyway? She's nothing. You know, mm. you can kind of imagine what a young child is thinking. He doesn't say the same thing about Wiley because it's only now that we're hearing about what he's... Mm. It's not years and years that he's been doing it. And it hasn't been in our faces for years and years. Mm. If it was, then I would say, yeah, let him go as well <laughs> but 
I I don't know. I mean, I'm in a I'm 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 in a funny way where I think. And the other thing question you asked was the counseling culture um, of a cane. It cane uh, if who does it affect if you're counseling people? Does it affect what what kind of part of the nation does it affect if you counsel that person? So who's going to lose out? Is it going to be them? Is it going to be the companies? Is it going to be... If the person is that easy for you to counsel, then you're going to counsel them. And I think it's a, it's a wrong way of counseling people. I, think. Mm. I agree with you, Ash. So maybe we should put an end to cancel culture and just have a bit more tolerance um, for people in society. Um, well, yeah, uh, we talked about sort of venting and people uh, kind of uh, having a go. Um, so how about Tyson having a go at Roy J Jones Jr.? Um, so we're talking about two absolute boxing legends, Ooh. both having been retired for many, 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 many years. Both of them over 50 now. Oh, wow. And both having agreed to return to the ring uh, in an exhibition match. Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones Jr. So the, the idea of it is kind of ludicrous, but we've been watching... Mike Tyson put out these little videos for some time now, and people have been getting excited, thinking, what's going on? Is he, He's getting back in shape. He's hitting the bag. He's with the trainers. He's in the gym. He's looking like a fighter again. And now the news is it's official. Mike Tyson is going to be fighting Bray Jones Jr. How do we feel about this? Me, personally, I absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by the idea of it. Uh, I did think if Tyson came back, maybe they should have him in the head guards and stuff like that. But apparently there's not going to be any head guards, but um, they might be using lighter gloves. I think, I think I've think i read 12-ounce gloves. I might be wrong. But um, um, I, I'm, I'm excited at the idea of it, but still a little bit scared because both of these guys are over the hill. So you've got two retired boxers over 50 coming back to fight. It could be terrible. It could be like at the end of the fight, somebody ends up getting an injury or, you know, ends up like Muhammad Ali with Parkinson's disease. Like, how would we feel if something like that happened? It would be horrible. That's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario, we get a good fight and everybody's entertained. Um, we get to see two legendary fighters yeah. grace, grace us with their presence one more time. But should they do it? I have um, Ash will have um, to talk about this because <laughs> <laughs> on, on a quick one because Ash, Ash, Ash looks like he's ready to go in on this. Yeah, yeah, you on. know, nah, you know I'm 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 kind of against it because don't get me wrong, if it's like a little exhibition and stuff like that, but the way it's being built is like they really want to go for this. And I don't know, like you're fifty one years old, you retired from the sport. Um yeah, you're naturally still gonna have those those like those inclinations, those kind of sentiments about you, you're still gonna wanna like kind of like jab and bob and weave and those kinds of things, but I don't know. I just feel this is this is just something that's gonna like it's gonna be again for money. Um, they're not they weren't even like near weight classes. Like Roy Jones to what to what Tyson's a heavyweight. Roy Jones was what like like middleweight kind I of. Think Roy Jones did climb up the weights and he did fight at heavyweight uh, towards the end of his career. Mm. 
I yeah, it's it's a no from me, isn't it? it yeah, it's a it's a, it's a no from me. But if it happens, cool. I just want everyone to be safe, man. Uh, that's the most important thing. Um, you know, Calton, what, what do you think of the concept, the idea of retired fighters coming back? Should they come back, or should should they have just left it back in the day? I think they they should have helped young people to get to where they got to um, in the young ages and support them rather than <laughs> rather than kind of come back this this time. But um, I mean, it's it's their right if they come back. But one of the what I was going to say was I. When I was in Brighton, I used to see Chris Eubank a lot, um, just walking about. Um, and growing up in London and kind of knowing um, these names on my four channels of, you know, Mike Tyson and Lizard Christie and, and all this, like, you know, um, athletics guys and boxers and uh, Sean Barnes and all these, like, big brothers. And I, I'm glad it's Mike Tyson coming back. No. <laughs> If anyone's coming back, let's see Mike Tyson. <laughs> well, this is it. He's a strong man. We all know the yeah, legend yeah. of Iron Mike Tyson. If anybody could pull this off, it's going to be Mike Tyson. That's the I, thing. It's not know. like your average kind of heavyweight boxer. It is the heavyweight boxer. Yeah, Do you yeah. Know what I mean, I mean, I, I was, I was trying not to kind of speak from a female perspectives, but you know, if when I was young, I wanted them to kind of keep fighting so I could watch them. So let's see. <laughs> well, no, this is it. This is, you and me are on the same page there. I, I didn't want Tyson to retire. Well, actually, I did because he he kind of he kind of went out in a bit of a disgrace. Mm. So it, it was it was a bit, you know, horrible to see Mike Tyson fighting and losing fights. And it was like, you might as well just call it a day then. If you're going to be getting knocked out by just kind of average fighters, then yeah. what's the point? But... Yeah, I'm excited to see him come back. I do feel like this is a big deal. There's a whole undercard that's been announced. You've got these YouTubers that are going to be fighting on the undercard and stuff like that. There's going to be millions and millions of viewers. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think uh, there's going to be a lot of interest in this one. And I like your point, Cal, about maybe what they should have done is put on the youngsters because that's exactly the kind of thing that Floyd Mayweather's done and Oscar De La Hoya. They've both, you know, put on their built companies and 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 have tried to put through the next generation yeah. and so hopefully this will just be maybe just a quick cash grab like you say they're doing it for the money um and uh and yeah maybe they will be setting up companies and doing things to to bring forward the next generation of boxing after that um so yeah um ash i'm not i'm not sure what you're like for time at the moment um but uh if there's another thing we could talk about, uh, I would love, Cal, for you to talk about the TV show that you might have been watching, I May Destroy You. Oh, wow. Um, I don't... Yeah. Um, have you guys watched it? <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I haven't actually watched it, so... Is um, it going? Um, he, I, I liked it. I mean, I, honestly, I think... Uh, I think the writer's Michaela. I think it was really well written. Um, it was really funny. It was real. You know, when you say it was real, there was you know stories that you recognize. It touched some of the issues of how black writers do struggle. Um, and also within that, even though she wrote this, uh, she was she's been writing about um, 
how how difficult it gets for for black writers as well. And I think it was entertaining, but it, you could kind of see um, hair, hair in it as well because I've watched that in different things, and this was one of the one of the good ones. But it also showed that it was it was a bit like Glee, wasn't it? But how much the black writers struggle that. You know, this, this should have come out years ago or a long time ago. Um, and I think it's really, I think everybody should watch it. It's quite fun. I, I absolutely love all the characters as well. The real. Hey. The <laughs> I, I gotta say, for me personally, um, it wasn't quite my cup of tea. I, I gave the first couple of episodes a try and um, I didn't really get into it, although I can see why some people would. Um, and but yeah, go and check it out. Um, and it's it's available on the BBC iPlayer right now. Um, so you guys can go and fill your boots up with that. Um, I, I think uh, at this point, you know, we probably should bring our podcast to an end. Okay. Um, but before we do, uh, Calton, I'd like to ask you if have you got any particular message that you would like to send out there to the world? First, thank you guys. Um, a small, very short message to you guys about your interview with uh, Mohammed, Councillor Mohammed, uh, which I was really interested in and shared it widely, um, got me to meet you today. So I'm really grateful. And I've enjoyed myself in chatting to you guys, and I hope we can do more of this. Um, my research is going to be on serious youth violence next year. And some of the things that would be shared would be nice for you guys to be linked to us as well at Unity Gym, um, which I will, when I meet, I will tag them as well. And I think these guys, if you meet them, they'd be amazing. So they might be your next people to talk to about the work they do during the lockdown. Um, and thank you very much. I, I could only say, um, if you're a young and you're activist and you want to know what it's like, even though I'm not young, what it's like to be in politics where I'm the only black person, um, and if you need a mentor who can you can talk to, contact these guys and contact, uh, then, then they'll contact me and we can do that, guys. Thank you. Awesome. Please do let people know where they can get you if it's on Twitter or um, whatever the best way is to reach you. My Twitter is at Kalka Osman is K A L K A Osman, um, and my Instagram is the same, and my Facebook is Councillor Kaltum, and you'll find me there, and and I'm linked to you guys, so if you if they follow you, um, they can find me there. Awesome, just like that. So thank you very much for joining us today, Cal. It's nice to speak to somebody with the same name as me. And uh, yeah, like you say, hopefully we'll get to link up again <laughs> sometime I'm, soon. I'm feeling really left out. Like being an Asher <laughs> is dead on this one, isn't it? I should call myself Asher so I can become Cal Ash. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. Like um, It's been an amazing conversation. And like I said earlier on, you, if you think about like every like you know when you fill in a, an application form you've got to tick boxes like you tick every single box that like you said has been oppressed has been like overlooked has not been given the right level of support the right level of equity um and a lot of times the right level of justice so for you to achieve what you've got the way where you've got to so far for you to have such big dreams about what, what you want to do next and for you to actually be having such an, an effect on a, on a community 
it's just beyond commendable and it's been an absolute honour to speak to you today. Thank you guys and make sure I keep in touch because I want to come to your school as well and talk to your students. Yes, I will do. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So peoples, remember it's at Beer Rap Bants if you want to get us on the socials. Um, beer Rap and Banter at gmail.com if you want to email us. I've been your host, Cal. Yeah, and I've been your co-host, Ash. Big up, Cal, as well. I know this was your link and you got you made all of this happen today. So, yeah, man, like, big shout out to you. Gonna give you your flowers so you can smell them. Cheers, man. And uh, a big shout out to our guest, Caltum Osman Rivers. Thank you, guys. It's good to meet you. Much love, guys. And we out. Peace.